looked like that was a pretty easy thing for you to talk about. Uh, <laughs> um, what are some of the distractions that, that you find are just so tempting? Food? Piano. Piano. Oh. <laughs> Ghosts? No. <laughs> Little children. Yes. Yeah. Lots Other of things that need organising. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like my calendar. Yeah. Like meal plans for the next week. Yeah. 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 Lots of things that distract as well. Uh, friends, um, we're going to be thinking about enduring, and uh, you can follow along in the outline there. Uh, there's a few uh, spaces there and a few points that we're going to be looking at uh, as we work through these verses together tonight. Uh, so as we do that, let's ask for God's help that we might not be distracted. <laughs> uh, Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our time together tonight that we can gather, that we can hear you speak to us. And we pray that we might not get distracted that we would focus, that we would hear you speak to us and we pray that, that those words might not fall on deaf ears but by your spirit they would go to work in us and produce a great fruit, a great harvest of righteousness for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, one of my greatest sporting moments, and yes I have more than one for those who are wondering, was in 1991 at the inaugural Camp Coburn Fun Run, a little village about two hours away from here where I lived as a kid. Um, the whole little Snowy Mountains town turned out for the race on a glorious Saturday spring morning. Everyone lined up for the 10 kilometre race, but not me because I'm not running 10 kilometres, don't be ridiculous. I lined up for the 5 kilometre race alongside my older brother. Now, my older brother is naturally more athletic than me. He is always being picked first in teams, played all sorts of rep sport, but me, well, I was unco and injury prone and not a lot has really changed. <laughs> and so uh, the race got underway with the gun and my brother and his friends kind of shot out the front. And uh, so as we reached the halfway mark, two and a half kilometres in, uh, there was a drink station there and I could see uh, that all the people who were up front had stopped, they were getting their drink, including my brother. And I knew, I knew what my brother would be thinking. He'd be thinking, we'll just wait here until, until Steve arrives and then we'll take off. Uh, and so uh, knowing this, what I did was I picked up my pace and I didn't stop. And I ran straight past them all and all of their mouths were just wide open in disbelief um, and, and, uh, and though it burned me all the way home, I kept up my speed, focusing on that finish line, spurred on by the glory that awaited me. And I just could not believe it. I ended up beating them all. And here's the medallion to prove it. That it's older than a lot of you here. Uh, but I was totally wrecked by the end of that race. Um, and uh, it was so worth it though. And my brother complained about how he would have beaten me if he didn't stop and how the drink gave him a stitch. Uh, but he still lost. 
And I won, and oh, the victory was glorious. It was so sweet, etched forever in the annals of Cancoban history into its hall of fame, if it ever gets around to building one. <laughs> Our passage tonight in Hebrews 11 and 12 is about running the race with endurance. It's about persevering as a Christian until the end, how we can continue in the faith and be saved, which is where our passage ended at uh, chapter 10 uh, last week, how we can continue in the faith and be saved, and how, at the end of our passage tonight, chapter 12, verse 3, how we can not grow weary and give up. Now, this is really the major theme throughout Hebrews. That's why our series is called hanging in there. And so in our verses tonight, we're invited to cast our eyes back in history to a whole bunch of women and men who have had faith in God and they persevered until the end of their life. We're invited to cast our eyes back in history to them. We're invited to fix our eyes on Jesus who is presently exalted. He is the exalted Son of God who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who 2,000 years ago became our great high priest who atoned for our sin, who lives now to intercede for us, and who in just a little while will return and will defeat all of his remaining enemies, all those who reject him, who draw back from him. But at the same time, he will welcome those who love him, and he will welcome them into his eternal rest. The main purpose of Hebrews, this message of exhortation, is to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we don't grow weary and give up, so that we will run with endurance the, mark, the race marked out for us. And friends, in this My Last Uni Church sermon to you all, I want nothing more than to echo the same purpose tonight, to urge you to fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race with endurance. And together, we will enter the joy that lays ahead of us. So as we turn to chapter 11, uh, open your Bibles there, be really good to follow along. We come not to a hall of fame, you know, where my name should appear if Ken Copen ever gets the act together, but we come to a hall of faith. We see a list of men and women who didn't give up trusting in God, when their reputation, when their livelihoods, and even when their very lives were on, line, on the line. There's Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab. They remained steadfast through persecution and trials. Now, as we read through it a little bit earlier, you might have been a little bit surprised to see a few names on the list. In verse 32, there's Gideon, the indecisive and gutless leader. There's Samson, the womanizer. There's Jephthah, the idiot son of a prostitute who made a stupid vow which ended up, in which he ended up killing his daughter, offering her up as a burnt offering to God. Now, how did they make it onto this list? They're still included there, aren't they, in this hall of faith? And this is actually really good news for us because having faith doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Because even in our failures, God is kind and generous and faithful, even when we are not. Yet despite their moral failures, over the course of their lives, 
They lived by faith. They didn't draw back. And so they were saved. And what we see in the nature of their faith is that it is gritty. Their faith is gritty and it is combined with a radical obedience. The members of this hall of faith have a gritty faith and a radical obedience. So have a look with me in chapter 11, verse 1, and see this gritty faith. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So as faith is being described here, the author is wanting to show that faith isn't some kind of mind game, something theoretical, but it has substance. It has a grittiness to it. The word reality there is the word for substance. It's not something subjective that you feel. Um, I think that can be implied a little bit by some of our translations that might use the word assurance or, or certainty. Um, now, of course, we do subjectively experience faith. The point of this verse as a topic heading for the whole chapter is that faith is something tangible. Faith is the substance of what is hoped for, a gritty reality of the things hoped for in the future. Here's how one commentator explains it. He says, Faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. Faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, has substance. Faith is something that is real and solid and has substance. There's this internal reality that goes on for people of faith that is as real as the physical world around us, as sure as the ground we stand on. And it is a trust in God who promises a whole bunch of things for the future. So here's some of the things that's hoped for in Hebrews that we've seen so far. A future salvation. There's the eternal inheritance. Uh, There's the world to come, a final Sabbath rest and the heavenly Jerusalem. And these things that are hoped for, they cannot be perceived through the senses. We can't see with our eyes or hear with our ears or taste with our tongues the future promises of God. But that still didn't stop Moses. Chapter 11, verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Isn't that just great? Moses sees him who is invisible. Moses saw the invisible and believed. And the proof of this faith, the outward demonstration of it, is seen through action. The internal reality and substance of faith in in God and his future promises is evidenced in the present through action. And so these people of the faith in chapter 11 show us by their perseverance, even into death itself, that their faith was real. Their endurance showed their faith had substance. When you love someone, you show them, don't you? You express it through your words, 
through your body language, through showering with gifts, whatever you know their love language might be. Now, cutting a piece of slice out of the middle of a lovingly baked slice is probably not a good example of love in action. With children, you discipline them. You don't let them get away with blue murder because you love them. You want what is best for them. You want them to grow up as, as people with integrity. If you're someone on someone's side in a fight because you believe them, well, you'll stand up for them and back them and you won't shrink away. Faith proves it's real through action. Faith proves it's real through action. And doesn't this cause a lot of cognitive dissonance with the unbelieving world around us? They don't understand why Christians do what they do. I think we've got a picture of cognitive dissonance here. Huh? Um, the, the world around us don't understand why Christians do what we do in our sexual ethics, in our sacrificial giving, our considering others' needs above our own. You know, stupid Noah building an ark in the middle of nowhere because of a flood coming. Stupid Abraham and Sarah thinking that they'll have a massive family when they're obviously so old. Stupid Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who'd rather be incinerated to death rather than bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. But if you're someone who has faith, well, you get it, don't you? Their kind of radical obedience makes sense. Faith in God and in his promises has substance. It is gritty and it is expressed through radical obedience. And God testifies to the gritty faith of these men and women. So verse 2, For by this our ancestors were approved. So as their accounts of, um, are recorded in the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, we see that, don't we, here in, in chapter 11, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, all over the place, uh, these people keep coming up. And what is happening is God is testifying to their faith. He is publicly approving them. And even so today, as we read these words through the witness of the Holy Spirit, God is testifying about them. He is approving them. You'll see this same word approved um, or testified about in verse 4. It's uh, twice in verse 4. It's there in verse 5 as well. And it's right at the end of this chapter in verse 39. And it's there again in a different form in the start of chapter 12 in verse 1. The word witness. God commends these women and men. He testifies to their faith. And what happens in chapter 12 is they then become testifiers of true faith to the listeners of Hebrews. They become witnesses. God witnesses about them and they become witnesses. But we'll get to that uh, shortly. Um, now, we don't have time to go into the, all the details of these witnesses. But I will just make a couple of points about the, the general character of their faith that we see in these verses. So first of all, their faith always had an object. Faith has an object. 
They had faith in something, and that's the way faith works. It always has an object that it places its trust in. You have faith in the chair that you're sitting on right now, that it will hold you up and not collapse under you. You have faith in that chair. You have faith in your mechanic, that she knows what she's doing when she fixes your brakes. You trust her. God's people have faith in God. And in particular here, we see it is faith in God's word, in his promises. And so Abraham, in verse 8, when he was called by God, when he heard the voice of God, he obeyed and he set out for the promised land. So Sarah, in verse 11, even though she was way too old to have a baby, she believed what God said to her, that he was faithful to his promises. Long ago, God spoke to these people by the prophets in different times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. Faith is in God and in particular his, his word. His word who has become flesh. And for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what Jesus has said. Because he is the word of God. We must do that so that we don't drift away. And that's the point back in chapter 2, verse 1. Faith is in Jesus, in the word of God. The second thing I want to point out to you here is that their faith was forward-looking. And so Abraham knew that the promises God made to him, um, the promises of the land, the physical land in in Canaan, of the offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, of incredible blessing to his people and to the whole world, could not be all that God had planned. It wasn't restricted just to that small time and place. And so in verse 9, we see, By faith, Abraham stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as Isaac did and Jacob co-heirs of the same promise. And then in verse 13 we read, These all died in faith, although they had not yet received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Verse 14 says, Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The people back in Old Testament times there, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they knew that the promises that God had made to them far exceeded a little clump of land in the Middle East. They were looking forward to their heavenly home. This world is not our home. We are foreigners. We are temporary residents. Our permanent residency is in the new city, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And, and so even now, we don't look for all of God's promises to be fulfilled in this life. The world is passing away. 
and a better place is coming. This faith is forward-looking. And this forward-looking faith was persistent. Even through suffering, like we will probably never know. Just let these verses kind of uh, filter through into your brain, into your heart. Verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. These men and women of gritty faith and radical obedience, they trusted the promises of God and they saw through death. They peered through death to the reality of eternal life. I wonder if you have this kind of faith that grips so tightly onto the future promises of God because you trust him. That you too might see through the trials and sufferings of of life. That you would peer through the shroud of death into the glorious future that God has promised. That God has guaranteed. Because Jesus has endured the cross. And he has conquered death. Because Jesus is alive and kicking and interceding for us as our great high priest at the right hand of the throne of God. But this is the only kind of faith that will see and please God, the only kind of faith that will endure. Gritty faith with radical obedience. Now the reason why we have uh, chapter 11 is spelled out for us in these first few verses of chapter 12. Chapter 11 is there to urge those with faith to run with endurance. So chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. As those with faith are urged to run with endurance, we see in verse 1 both the witnesses and the obstacles. This cloud of witnesses are the hall of faithers of chapter 11, those that God testifies about in the scriptures. They serve to encourage those with faith to finish the race. Picture thousands in this cloud, like the the Tour de France, where, where there are just 
bucket loads of people cheering them on. There's actually bike riders in the middle of that. But these, these witnesses are not simply washed up has-beens some, that some exuberant historian with an over-fascination of the past wants to revive the memory of. No, they continue to speak today, even though they are dead. That's precisely what we read in chapter 11, verse 4. Even though they are dead, they continue to speak through their faith. The words they speak today are not as your personal life coach or an over-functioning helicopter parent screaming out, great job, keep it up, you can do it. I did it and so can you. They're not saying that. They're called witnesses, not cheerleaders. They are witnesses of God's faithfulness to his promises throughout history. And so they're saying, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. You can trust him. And so our job is to listen to their testimony, to believe them as as we keep running our race. And so all of these women and men in chapter 11 are not primarily examples for us to follow, that we too should go and do amazing things like them in faith or of what we will achieve if we just have faith like them, that we'll be able to shut mounds of lions and be mighty in battle. No, they are witnesses to God's faithfulness. They are passing this eyewitness testimony on to you. So do you listen to the witness of Scripture? To the people who have been there and done that as evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness? Do you use that as an energy gel to keep you enduring? Because they are God's grace to you. So treasure the living and active voice of Scripture. Now as we run this race together, it's not just a marathon running on smooth paved roads and athletic tracks. It has obstacles in the way. It's a trail run with dangers on every turn. But these dangers are internal dangers rather than external. They're kind of self-inflicted. Verse 2 talks about things that hinder us. Maybe they're, they're not things that are sinful in and of themselves, but they still weigh us down unnecessarily in the race. You know, you might be like a person here who just loads up and, you know, can you imagine trying to run a marathon like that? Things that hinder you. Maybe, maybe what might be in mind here, um, we've seen them talking about laziness um, in Hebrews already, so maybe it's being, being lazy. Uh, these things can turn into sin, but, but maybe they're not quite there yet. Um, maybe it could be working too much. Maybe it's being too easily distracted with things. You just lose focus all the time. Maybe it's a relationship that holds you back from serving God with your full effort. Things that hinder us. But then there's also the the obvious sin that so easily ensnares. I think the image here is like deliberately running into a pile of old barbed wire instead of running well clear of it. I don't know whether you know people who might do that. Um, But saying that's what sin does. 
within us. We know we shouldn't, but we run headlong into it. It tangles you up. It prevents you from running and finishing the race. So I wonder if things uh, that might be in mind here are like, uh, if you kind of focus on yourself so much, whether it's things like greed or, or lust or people-pleasing, things we know are wrong but we just can't help ourselves. I think it's anything or anyone that causes you to give up on the race altogether. So don't go and jump into that barbed wire. Run away. The plea in Hebrews here is to lay it all aside. Chuck it off. Every hindrance, every sin, so that we can finish the race. Now how are we going to do that? Because if we look at ourselves, if we look inwards for strength, this all sounds pretty impossible, doesn't it? When we know how weak our hearts are, when we know how easy it is to get distracted by shiny things. When our confidence in crossing the finish line and enduring to the end is not in ourselves, it is completely tied up with Jesus, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Chapter 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance for the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In every sport, there's always contention about who the GOAT is. In tennis, who knows who these people are? Who's this one? Serena. Serena, who's this? Yeah, very good. And? Steffi Graf. Steffi Graf, very good. Yeah. You know, who is the GOAT? What about in soccer? Who is the GOAT in soccer? Who do we have here? Maradona. Maradona. Messi and Pelé. Oh, very good. My basketball, my favourite. I'm wearing my favourite basketball shirt tonight. Um, who have we got here? LeBron. Oh, that's easy. He's got his name on the back, doesn't it? In the middle. Oh, good. You know him. And Kobe. Yeah, you know, there's, there's always contention about who is the GOAT in any sport. But in Hebrews, there is no contention whatsoever. It's bleedingly obvious that it is Jesus. There are no other rivals. He wins every statistical category by a country mile. And anyone who might have even been a little bit close, well, they're disqualified because they are full of sin. They die. There actually is no competition for Jesus. He is the goat. And what it is that makes Jesus the goat here in these verses is that he endured the shameful cross with joy. He endured it for you. He hung there for you, bearing the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He's the goat because his perfect sacrifice was acceptable to God. He paid for our sin. 
is the goat because he is crowned with glory and honour. He is given the seat at the right hand of the throne of God. He is given the name above every other name. Jesus is the goat. He is the goat of priests, the goat of sacrifices, the goat of the hall of faith, the goat of God's word. He is God's final and greatest word. And so not only should we fix our eyes on him as we run this race with endurance, here is why he's also the goat. Because he is the reason we are even in that race to begin with. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And what a great relief that is. We are in this race and we will cross the finish line because of the goat because of his faithfulness. And so it's a no-brainer, is it, to keep your eyes fixed on him, to focus on Jesus so that you can keep going in the right direction, even if it means suffering. Because we look to him and we look to the suffering that he endured for us. And so we keep looking to Jesus so we don't grow weary and give up. And so as you run your race, I want to ask you, who might you be a witness to? Not just how to run with endurance as a Christian, but who will you testify to about God's goodness and faithfulness? Will you join me in swallowing your pride and people-pleasing and take courage as we trust in God's faithfulness and we verbally testify about God's goodness to us, despite what it might cost. As you look to next year, how might you encourage first-year students with your example and your words? Who do you know that might be growing weary as a Christian? who might be close to giving up, that you can go and you can run alongside with them, helping each other to untangle yourselves while pointing each other to the goat. The kind of faith that Jesus gives is gritty as it grasps hold of the future promises of God. It manifests itself in the present through radical obedience. Friends, what great love does God have for us? What great hope we have because he who promised is faithful. And what joy is now ours as we run with confidence and endurance all by the grace of God. We're going to reflect on these words of God tonight in song and so the musicians are going to come up. And... Um, uh, I'll come back up after, after they, uh, they finish uh, for any questions that you might have. Uh, but let's spend some time now reflecting on God's goodness, on his faithfulness to us.